Smartcast. It's not really our fault that we can't pay attention anymore. Everything is coming at us at such a rate. Our emails, our texts, the news. You can't go into a restaurant without having three news stations on the thing and then sports and all that stuff. It really has to be a deliberate, forceful taking back of your attention. Welcome to Think Business with Tyler, sharing our methods and strategies for success. Join in on our conversations with business owners as we highlight their triumphs and detail how they overcame the challenges they faced while continuing to grow and scale their business. It's time to think life, think success, and think business with your host, Tyler Martin. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. Thanks so much for listening. Do I have a fun show for you today with just a great guest? His name is Mark J. Silverman. Mark has such an interesting story of going from a homeless person to a millionaire. He's now an executive coach. And in this episode, he's going to share with us things along the lines of how to find your motivation, why leaders need to focus more on coaching than doing, how to get your to-do list in order, and finally, the importance of finding time to just sit with yourself. Once again, you're going to find Mark just a blast to listen to. He brings a lot of energy and he just has really freely shares his wisdom. So let's start the show. Hey, Mark, thanks for being on the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. How are you doing today? I am doing great. We've had such a great conversation before you turn on the mic that I'm all, I just can't wait to talk to you. Uh, yeah, I'm excited too. You're going to be fun to uh, hear your story and your journey here. So hey, where I like to get started is just a little bit about you. Can you tell me what you do and kind of what got you here? So what I do is uh, I, I guess I'll call myself an executive coach, you know, like that LinkedIn thing. I'm, an, I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a speaker. And uh, you know, I make my money as an executive coach, helping leaders figure out how to leverage all the resources that they have rather than being overwhelmed and buried under the responsibilities of leading a team and running a business and trying to raise a family and trying to stay fit and trying to keep your relationship going, all that stuff. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff. So you've had a journey to get where you're at today. When you were 27, you were homeless. Could you give a, tell us about that? I mean, homeless, that sounds pretty extreme. And now you're, you know, you got you to a millionaire at some point along the journey. Can you kind of share what got you from point A to point B? Yeah, no, it, I wasn't a really successful going human concern. Uh, you know, as a, as a teenager, you know, like I found out in my 40s that I had ADD, right? Like I, when we were testing my children, they were like, dad is off the charts. And I'm like, oh, no wonder, right? So, you know, through my teens, you know, being a drug dealer in high school and that kind of stuff and, you know, having a lovely face and, you know, being a nice Jewish boy, nobody would ever suspect who I was going to become, that kind of thing. But I, you know, I just drank and did drugs and was a sex addict and it was just, it was just pretty pitiful. So by the time it was um, 1989, I was 27 years old, I was out of options, out of money. I had a pickup truck a guitar that I didn't know how to play, a camera I didn't use, and a jar full of change in my in the back of my pickup truck. And I was looking at homeless shelters, trying to figure out where you know what I was going to do. And I contacted my brother here in Washington D.C., asked him to send me some money. And back then we didn't have Venmo. Back then it was like Western Union, and what we didn't know is you had to be at the exact Western Union store where you were sending the money, that kind of thing. So I was, I had a credit card, that had a Unicall 76 card. And that was the only credit card that had any room on it. So I was eating out of gas stations. 
And my brother suggested that I come here to Washington, D.C. And I was in Portland, Oregon, because I heard you know, a girl I waited tables with in Albuquerque, New Mexico, moved to Portland. And I had a crush on her. So I just drove to Portland. It was, again, I didn't make really good decisions. So I drove out here to D.C. My brother said, you know, you can, uh, and he, he owned a bunch of restaurants. He was basically the mayor of Georgetown. And he said, if you're going to stay here, you're going to go to AA, NA, you're going to go to the gym, and you're going to take college classes. And I'm like, I got nothing else to do. You own a bunch of great restaurants. I'll do that. So I went, you know, I started going to college. I started to get healthy. I started to get sober and, and sane. And, you know, about eight, eight years later, you know, I found myself married, you know, driving a sports car, you know, basically a, you know, a millionaire, a short Jewish Tony Robbins, if you will. Wow. Right. So, uh, and it was kind of whiplash because, you know, my ex wife and I, we lived in like this million dollar house and like i wasn't used to that it was you know living in status symbol land where everybody goes to the kids baseball games and the pta and you know i was a committee chair for the boy scouts and i was a third grade basketball coach it was whiplash for me i just it was really uh, like a foreign country but i i became a salesman and uh, i'm a rabid introvert uh, so <laughs> and i don't like and back and I, you know when we could talk about my book uh, my book was about me learning to set boundaries, to speak up, to do all those stuff. I didn't. I was like, I was a nice guy. I'd never set a boundary. I, I like everybody liked me because I was such a nice guy. So sales, you know, high tech sales was really hard. And somehow I was wildly successful. So the money's coming in, and you know, I'm wearing Hugo Boss suits and wearing a, you know a solid gold watch and all this stuff. It was a really interesting juxtaposition from who I saw myself to be and always trying to prove that I wasn't this homeless loser guy, right? So all that effort went into never being seen as the homeless loser guy again. So we'll talk about that later, about how it's unsustainable. You know, that, that drive to success, it's often from something really unhealthy. I've never met a, an uber, wildly, amazingly successful person who didn't have some kind of pathology drive in that. Right. Is there some healthy element to that though, that, you know, you don't want to be that, a homeless guy in the back of your mind that feeds you to try to succeed. I mean, is there a level of that do you think that's healthy and a level of that, that you think is really unhealthy? And I guess is what you're saying is sometimes the balance gets into that unhealthy space. I think the healthy part is it's the rocket fuel to get you out of the orbit of Earth, right? Like you need you need that rocket fuel to get yourself out of what you are. You need an explosion to change things, right? So that rocket fuel got me to be a different person, to be in a different set of people, to see myself differently, right? Even if only from the outside. What happens is that, you know, for me, the drives and motivations in your 20s and 30s that get you to that success in your 40s and 50s start to crack, right? So you start to see, oh, I'm only successful. I'm only a lawyer because my parents wanted me to be a lawyer. Like that whole thing, like I climbed the ladder and the ladder's on the wrong building. Right. So it, then if you don't listen to it, so that's, that's the whole midlife crisis thing for me is if you don't listen to the whisper of, you know, this is unsustainable or, you know, this really isn't what you want to be doing, you know, or, you know, that you need to do things differently and make a shift. If you don't listen to that, that's when you tend, you know, women tend to go into adrenal fatigue or they, they tend to go down in other ways. Men tend to blow shit up. <laughs> right. Like, it's like, I don't know how to get out of this. So I think I'll have an affair, screw my marriage. And now I can try something new, right. Or I'll destroy my, my career in some way. Right. Uh, instead of methodically going, you know, I think I'd like to make a change. What are the steps to that? Right. right? That's, that's, that's too sane. Yeah. Yeah. We go to self-sabotage. So a question for you, you 
incredible success as a salesperson. I think think the number's like around $90 million, which is a crazy number. You could have really gone into... Well, I'm sure you could have gone in a lot of directions, but in particular, you could have gone as a sales type coach or sales training. You went to leadership. I'm curious, what was the decision in terms of more on the leadership path of helping leaders? I didn't originally go to leadership. So what happened ah. is years later... This all turned on me. So, so I, I speak from experience. So again, I'm the introvert. So I'm the one who is in the kitchen washing dishes. I'll, I'll go to parties. My ex-wife used to say, you know, nobody believes she had a husband because I'd go to a party and I'd leave before nine o'clock, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I'd just slip out of the Irish goodbye. I'm going to the bathroom and nobody ever saw me again. You know, if I did stay at parties, I would be talking to people uh, in the kitchen or whatever. And they would tell me what's going on in their lives. Right? I have that gift that people share with me what's really happening. And what I realized was we made a pact, you know, an unspoken agreement to be in the 1% that we'll be okay being stressed all the freaking time. We are okay being up at 2 o'clock in the morning. We're okay not being you know, in relationship with our spouses and our families and that kind of thing, as long as we can have that success. So we'll buy toys, we'll have vacations, we'll make it Instagram worthy to cover that up. So for me... What happened in 2009 was stone cold sober. I started having panic attacks. I started getting really sick and I couldn't sell anymore. My marriage fell apart. I found myself in an apartment you know, by myself, really, really sick. And I just couldn't sustain it. Remember what I was saying is that motivation turned on me. So my career was destroyed. My marriage was destroyed. My health was destroyed. I was even diagnosed that I was going to die. There's always drama in my... There's all this drama in my story. Now I have no zero drama in my life whatsoever, but I had all this drama. Sure. Uh, and I made this decision to that if I was going to die, as they say, you know, they, they, and it was really terrifying. I was depressed, suicidal, and I was going to die. And uh, I said, you know what? I'm going to run the Marine Corps Marathon because I heard some guy on the, on the radio say you could run. All people could run. So I'm like, I couldn't run a freaking mile. I said, I'm running the Marine Corps Marathon. I'm going to make a million dollars and leave that for my ex-wife and my kids. And I'm going to give $60,000 to charity. That was a specific number that I felt could redeem me. And uh, that year, I ran the Marine Corps Marathon. I don't recommend it because I had like four operations on my foot after that. <laughs> <laughs> I made the million dollars. Uh, I gave the $60,000 to charity. Wow. And my, so my career was on fire again. My kids and my ex-wife were doing well. I was doing great. You know, I was 50 years old and I started to climb out of it. I went from hating myself and wanting to die to being okay, to being... To being and, then, and then I had an epiphany. Mm-hmm. I had this epiphany that I'm loved. I had this epiphany that I'm worthy. Like my kids are worried. Like I did everything for everybody else. And this this author, Alan Cohen said, uh, you know, what if you treated yourself the way you treat everybody else? And I was like, I'm not even on the list. What are you talking about? So I went and bought a TV. I bought a leather couch and a Lexus convertible for myself. And my (laughs) ex-wife was so sweet. She was like, you know, you deserve that. And like, I put myself on, again, the pendulum swinging a little too far, but I realized that I was free that I was worthy. And that was a revelation to me. And I was like an ex-smoker, right? So I was watching everybody kill themselves. I had a friend who bought a Bentley, right? He was so successful, he bought a Bentley and then died you know, a few months later at you know, 50 years old, right? You know, part, so I was watching all these people just destroy themselves. So I went and you know, I started taking these coaching courses. I was kind of tricked into it, but that's another whole nother because <laughs> I didn't even know what coaching was. I found that that was my, you know, that like I was really good at it. But it was more life coaching. I cared about people. So I was, I, when I first became a coach, I was much more a life coach than anything else. And what I found was I really missed 
being in glass buildings. I really missed business people. I missed earth people. I, I didn't want people who already knew that there was all this stuff. I wanted people who were like, no, the bottom line is all I care about. And I'm having a lot of stress. What do I do about that? Right? Or, or I want to grow my business. Can you help me do that? And I've really become kind of my, my career has moved to young uh, rising leaders who have just exploded and are being promoted so fast that they're bulls in the china closet and the ceo calls me and says you know you need to teach them some manners right so i teach them to manage up i need to teach them to collaborate laterally and i teach them how to lead their teams to go from you know an individual contributor to success through others my other half of my business is the old dogs the entrepreneurs who are just like i'm in my 50s I can't do this anymore, but I have to do this because it's my business and people depend on me and I help them that way. So, but it evolved. At first, it was, you know, I, I got rid of the suits. I got rid of all the business stuff. I didn't care about any of that stuff. I just cared about people's souls and their hearts. Now I hide that. <laughs> I don't tell people that that's what I care about. I care about their success and all that stuff. And then I sneak that, that in so that when I had dinner with a couple of my clients, up in Canada a few weeks ago, I had dinner with their wives. I coached the leadership team of this one organization. And their wives started telling me how over the three years that I coached their husbands, that their marriages improved, that they're the kind of fathers they need to be. And I'm bawling my eyes out in front of my clients you know, at, this, at this dinner you know, because that's what I cared about. Wow. wow. So it, it's evolved. I love being in glass buildings and working with business people. So you just said something I really want to dig into because I see this a lot and I think it's common. I'm sure the audience can relate to it. You get to a point in your career where you're running a business, you're an entrepreneur and you're burnt out. I mean, it's just, you've been doing, maybe it's a certain skill set you have or whatever. You've been doing it for many years and you're just like, man, I'm not having fun anymore. How do you approach that? I mean, it sounds like you work with a lot of people like that. What What are your thoughts around that? Is there anything you could share with the audience. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. Yeah, yeah. I work with this one serial entrepreneur. He's got several companies and he started a new tech company. He has one, one particular company that's just rocking and rolling. He has a foundation and he has a software company that he's just trying to get off the ground. And he's really, he's kind of passionate about it, okay. but he's not doing what he needs to do to get it where it needs to go. Right. <laughs> and he's like, and he constantly said, he says, you know, Mark, in my twenties and thirties, I would have knocked this list out in no time and done 10 times more. He says, I just don't have the mojo. I don't have the motivation to knock these things out. The, you know, like you, you like I didn't have ADD when I was younger. You would think I'd have ADD now. And so we delve deeper and deeper and deeper. And you know, sometimes coaching really has to go for the jugular. And finally he was like, he was resentful that he had to do this all over again, that he had to do the things in his 20s and, you know, and 30s at 50 something years old. He's like, I shouldn't have to do this anymore. He wound up shutting down the company, focusing on his other company, right? And now has much more free time, stops putting money into this, getting this startup going, and is having a much better life. But he had to admit to himself that he didn't want to do that anymore. And I think that's part of the things that you have, I don't know if you've heard of Robert Keegan's uh, competing commitments, mm, uh, yes. the immunity to change. So the commitments is this thing inside, you know, like you should do this and you said you were going to do this, but inside you're like, I don't really want to. And now you got to find a different motivation and you got to figure out, you know, so one of the things I do with a lot of my clients is spend the money on the people to do the things you don't want to do. That's very cliche. Right. Right. But I can't tell you how but many people true. won't do it. Right. Well, they just won't do it. And every time you offload something, every time you learn to delegate, because a lot of people have, we talk about it, but they haven't learned to delegate and empower. They haven't 
learn to take their hands off the wheel, let people fail, give them the feedback, right? Most, most CEOs don't want to give feedback. That's why you and I have jobs, right? Right, right, right. You go give them the feedback because I don't have time to coach. And you know, as well as I do, the more you climb up the ladder, the bigger your company gets, the less your job is to do, the more your job is to coach, right? And most leaders balk at that. Why do I have to spend so much time coddling people? Because that's your job now. Because you have humans who are dealing with COVID. You have deal- humans who watch Fox News and MSNBC and hate each other. You have people who have families who are dealing with stuff. You know, you have people who have their own. You just have to do that. And once you accept that your job is to coach people into the most successful versions of themselves, now you're creating new leaders in your organization. And I'm sure you do this because I watched, you know, I looked, I researched you, and you know, you couldn't grow the companies you grew. You couldn't do that if you weren't leveraging these leadership skills of creating other leaders so that you could focus on your zone of genius, right? Yeah. Uh, or have the leaders of the companies that you work with focus on their zone of genius. Yeah. You know, it's so funny, Mark, prior to this meeting, I actually was meeting with a client, two, two gentlemen, they're a very successful business. When we first started working together, that connection with their staff in terms of coaching just wasn't natural to them. And it was really a very rewarding meeting because the meeting was about how a couple of individuals they've worked with and really started to you know, coach them and help them. They're now seeing like just that rocket fuel, if you will, using your words of, of that change just happens really quickly because it's all kind of just pent up where they're not really helping their staff grow in terms of coaching. And then all of a sudden it just takes off. So to your point, it was kind of a really rewarding meeting just to hear them apply some of that and see those changes. It just I love when people listen to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It didn't quite make me cry yet. But I'll, that'll be maybe the next meeting. But I, to your point, like it's just such a great feeling when they... And it is hard. Like, What is the answer to that? Like, How do you get... Because sometimes, let's be honest, when you're in your 50s or even 40s, you start to get a little stubborn and you don't automatically connect with that coaching element. How do you deal with that? Do you ever have clients that are a little stubborn? And, and do you have unique ways that you go, hey, help them to see the light that this could very well change how they're feeling? Well, the, the magic pill is a 360 evaluation. Ah, okay. That is a magic pill. You do a 360 on a CEO or some senior leader, and you have all the people in their organization saying, he does this and it shuts me down. Or he like, like, you know, now you have a place to shoehorn them in. Again, if you want a coach, you want an executive coach, you want a business coach, you need a business coach who's going to speak truth to power, who's going to pierce your thing. I will tell people, you don't have to do this. You don't have to coach these people. This is the consequence. I had another guy who was a CIO and he, he was a CIO in this big multinational organization. And he was the kind of guy who people followed from startup to startup to startup, right? Uh, they loved him. Everybody loved him. And there was this other guy in the organization who was a bit of a jerk, right? A bit of, a bit of an asshole. But he would say to me, why is this guy... His people would never bring him reports that weren't finished. His people would never bring mistakes and all that stuff. Why am I up until two o'clock in the morning fixing my stuff from my people? And the difference is uh, maybe he does it in a harsh way and we don't want to be toxic like him, but he doesn't accept subpar work. What I, you know, If you want this, you have to learn the art of letting someone fail, then giving them the feedback, which most people don't know how to give feedback. What I love is, what would be even better is the gap is here, right? And then going back and going back and going back until they understand the level of work that, you know, and level of excellence that needs to be done. Most people don't have the stomach 
to do that or the patients. I'll just fix it myself, right? I'll just, it'll take me 10 minutes, right? right. right? And then they never create that, that organization that supports them. It's just an organization that is another drag on their time and their energy. Hey, this is Tyler. Oftentimes, business owners and entrepreneurs hire me because they are stuck. Their business is stuck. They've hit a wall and can't take their business to the next level. And they're frustrated. When I grew my second business, it took me a while to get the pieces to fit. But once they did, the business scaled fast. In fact, it grew to $25 million in annual revenue and ultimately sold for eight figures. So I decided to put together a roadmap for scaling a business. I want to help stuck business owners that want to scale but are having challenges. It's called the Scale in 5 Roadmap, and you can get a copy by doing the following. Text the number 55444 and type the word SCALE and hit send. A copy of the roadmap will be sent to your inbox. Most people don't have the stomach to do that or the patience. I'll just fix it myself, right? I'll just, it'll take me 10 minutes, right? And then they never create that, that organization that supports them. It's just an organization that is another drag on their time and their energy. I want to circle back to the 360 just for uh, the benefit of the audience. So that's the one where the version of it that you're talking about is where you actually go to, I think it's, is it eight to 12 other people? And you act, do you actually ask? I'm stingy. I do, I do five or six. Is it five? Okay, sorry. I don't mean to inflate it. You go to five or six other colleagues or is it managers or executives or is it peers? It's usually someone senior or if it's the CEO, maybe even a board member. If it's a you know a, a VP level or that uh, a C suite, you know someone above, someone a couple people lateral, couple people below, right? And sometimes sometimes I'll expand it like you said to eight or nine or ten because you just have to have that. Every once in a while, I want to talk to their wives. <laughs> my intu- I usually go with my intuition. Every once in a while, the wife will have an insight that is so perfect. So I have I have one client who jumped ship from one company. To a company I knew was going to be just a bear to work for, he you know, and I'm like, you don't want to do this. And I, I in the 360, I talked to his wife, and he and she said, oh no, he's this guy, he is this through and through. And I'm thinking he wants to be with his family, he wants to be with his children, he wants to, like all this stuff. And she's like, oh no, no, I know who I married. She says, I'm good with it. He's wonderful, but he belongs in the Shark Tank with these people. So when I'm coaching him, now that I have that insight. I don't have my own bias of who wants to be in a shark tank and never see your kids. This guy does, right? He's, this is his element for now. So it, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting thing to learn. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. So when you talk to the other people, it's all confidential, of course. And then you take that data and then you synthesize it back to your client. I turn it the, into the, a narrative. Right. Yeah, so I turn yeah. it into a narrative. So you don't really, so you, you can't really attribute, you know, so and so is, you know, you, is this. And then they know right. exactly who it is so that they can go wreak their, their revenge. I right, make a right. narrative so that all, you know, it's just gen, like general. Right. And I, and I throw some, you know, this people, it was, it was one guy I was doing a 360 and I said, so what is, what is his leadership gift? What is he the best at? And the guy says, I don't see him as a leader. I just don't see him as a leader. He doesn't have any gifts. I'm like, Hey, outlier. Let's take this one. <laughs> oh, you know, let's, you know, so, you know, or, and then I get the people who are like, oh my God, he's amazing. I love, uh, you're not helping me. <laughs> yeah. hey, he's not going to, he or she isn't going to know it to you. Right. So it's you can like, really tell me how you feel. 
Are there common thing themes that come out of that just to maybe to help people that are common challenges that leaders are having? Common challenges are they do too much to prove themselves. So if they're if they're at the VP level or new C-suite people, often they're overcompensating for a lack of confidence. Uh, and they do too much. They keep their hands in too much, and they haven't learned to separate themselves. New leaders also, you know, one of the one of the things that's hard is they see themselves as one of the gang. Then when they're promoted, they're now them, but they don't want to be seen as them. And my job is to show them you're no longer one of the gang, right? You are now them. You represent the organization. You represent the leadership team. Your us is the is who you used to think is them. Right? You can still lead with empathy. You can still have relationships, but you have to understand where your vantage point is. That's a big one. right? But letting your, getting your hands off the wheels of doing when you got your self-esteem from being the best at doing, you know, and, that, you know, and now you have to get your, get your self-esteem from guiding and watching other people be successful is a tough one. Yeah. Okay. Hey, I want to leave some time to talk about your book. So you have the book, Only Tens 2.0, Confront your to-do list and transform your life. What it for the sake of the audience? What is only tens? What does that mean? So tens, tens mean uh, kind of like Derek Sivers wrote a book, and it, you know his concept was hell yes or hell no. Right, right. There's no hell maybe's. Uh, it's either it's either a ten or you don't do it. So one through nines have to get thrown off the off the book. So I have people put everything on their on their uh, list to-do list one through ten. And then, you know, the ones and twos absolutely throw them out, right? The threes and four, the fours, five, sixes, sometimes, you know, throw them out. We get to eights and nines and they're like, this is a really good idea. I should do this, right? Like I can't let, and that's the things we have to pry out. You know, uh, Warren Buffett was uh, in the cockpit with his um, pilot once and he had his pilot, you know, I guess the the plane was on autopilot according to the story. And he says, okay, write down the 25 things you want to do this year that are really important. Pilot writes it down and says, what are the five most important? Writes down the five most important. And Warren Buffett says, okay, what are you going to do with the other 20? He says, well, I'll get to them when I get to them. And Warren Buffett says, no, that is the other 20 things are the avoid at all cost list, right? So, you know, there's books, the one thing, deep focus, so, you know, all essentialism, which I've failed at all of them. Because the, the problem was these are written by people who are actually focused on the right things. I can't, right? And most of my clients can't. So I have to actually get them to be honest with themselves about what they're willing to do, what they're not willing to do, what they want to do, what they want to, you know, what's a distraction, what's not, right? So, so, you know, for me, I want to write my next book. I really want to write my next book. But for me, that's hiding because the next thing is to create this new program that I'm creating, right? So my, my mastermind is like, you're not, and my publisher is like, you're not allowed to write your next book because <laughs> you'll, that's a productive thing. And I'll make worksheets all day long and people love my worksheets. That's hiding from some of the thing that has the 10 for me, right? It's a good idea. It'll be real, you know, it has to get thrown out. So that's the idea of a 10. And what the offshoot for that is when you look at your to-do list, I can read someone's to-do list like a tarot card, right? I, I know <laughs> how they grew up, what they care about, what they're afraid of, you know, how they get their self-esteem all from a to-do list and why things are on their list and why, they're, why the things are not on their list. You know, so prying, you know, getting people to confront the conversation. So that leads into a, a conversation about difficult conversations. Can you have the difficult conversations of setting a boundary? Can you have the difficult conversations of asking for help? Can you, can you learn to create agreements about when something is going to be done, when something's not going to be done, how it's going to be done, and you know, what are the steps? And now we have fodder for leading. 
right? Why are you overwhelmed? So I can, I can take anybody and in 15 to 20 minutes, I can give them eight to 10 hours back in their week. Easy, easy peasy. And is that, let's drill down on that. Is that because you're only going to focus on your tens or take me through why is that? How are you going to do that? So in, in 10, 15 minutes, I can't get people to focus on their tens, but I can get them to see when they do their to-do list. And when I do this in a group setting, it's always hilarious. You know, they, they're like, I'm going to give you four minutes to write down the, all the things on your to-do list and you know, stop at 15 because we only have a certain amount of time. And they write all this stuff and everybody's all overwhelmed and all that stuff. And then I take them through the process of why things are on, do the only tens thing. And then I go around and uh, I'm like, so what's on your list that was on your list yesterday, the day before, last week, right? And they're like, okay, is it going to get done today? Is it going to get done this week? Really? Like, uh, does it really need to get done? And I start going through those things. What's on your list that should have been delegated? What's on your list that you know is just complete bullshit and you're never going to do it, right? <laughs> and, we, and we go through this, right? What's on your list that's a placeholder because you just don't want to forget about it, right? Now, then I go around and I go, so anybody, and very invariable, a couple people will be like, I've got nothing to do next week. <laughs> like none of these are tens. I'm like, right, that doesn't mean you're not going to do anything. It means that now you get to pick and choose. You get to actually be the master of your destiny. You're not as much of a victim of circumstances as you think. You just have to be busy because it's so much easier to be busy than to pick and choose what you're actually going to work on, right? And again, I have to work through this for myself because I am not automatically, oh, these are my big rocks. These are my A's, B's, and C's. I'm going to do my A's. I'm much more interested you know, in silly things that are easy and fun and give me a little dopamine hit than I am in picking up the phone and calling someone and finding out where an invoice is or you know, do something with taxes, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think we're all that way. We all want that dopamine hit. And so we do things that necessarily aren't necessarily moving the ball forward in the bigger picture. And so I think that probably stumbles most of us. It's just, it's just now, like, you know, with, you know, I'm reading a book called Stolen Focus by um, uh, Johan Hari about the addiction to technology, about the, you know, the, attention, the attention economy and how it's like, it's not really our fault that we can't pay attention anymore. Everything is coming at us at such a rate. Our emails, our texts, the news. You can't go to a restaurant without having three news stations on the thing and then sports and all that stuff. It really has to be a deliberate forceful taking back of your attention. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so just in terms of uh, leaders, I want to end on that. I just got a couple more questions here. Just in terms of leaders, what do you think, does something stand out, top three things leaders do that actually create overwhelm for themselves? Anything stand out to you like a top three type list? Well, we talked about it. One is okay. they take on too much. The other is they care about too much. Yeah. Right. So I have a, I have a saying, uh, not my circus, not my monkeys. <laughs> uh, that I te- that I teach all my clients, and again, most of my clients are hyper responsible, over responsible. Sure. Sure. They care about everything. Everything is a ten, and I'm like, you're going to kill yourself. Like if you go in, if you go into the leadership team meetings and everything is a ten, and you have to fight for everything, right? Nobody's going to take you seriously. You're going to exhaust yourself, and they're like. Yeah, no, it takes me about a day to recover from every leadership meeting. I'm like, yeah, because you fight on every front. Like, pick <laughs> your battles, right? Which hill do you want to die on? Uh, not my circus is not my monkeys. Is if it's in another part of the organization and it's not your problem, it's not your freaking problem. If all your problems are handled and you want to go le- lend a hand, go do that. But if you're not taking care of your backyard, you know now you're overwhelming yourself. So that's that's a that's a big one also. And uh, then it's just the the other is uh, having the hero complex. 
Yeah. Right? I'm the only one who can do this. I'm the only one who can do this right. <laughs> Back to delegation. Yeah. Yeah. Those are great ones. Hey, I want to end with one last question here. I always love to end with a business or a life tip. If you have something along your journey that you could share with us and we could apply to our lives. I'm going to go so cliche that you're going to be disappointed <laughs> in me. You can't me. do that to me. This has been an epic interview. You, you can't go cliche. Yeah, you can. I'm kidding. Okay. You must have a contemplation at, uh, practice. You must have... So you know, I work with New York finance guys whose legs are bouncing a million miles an hour and they'll never sit and meditate or anything like that. Huh. But you have to have a time where you sit and you be with yourself. You okay. sit and breathe. So even if you can't meditate, if you can't journal... Go sit and have a cup of coffee, put your phone aside and just look out the window for five minutes. But you have to learn how to have that homing device. And if you, even if you, you know, I, I teach people the one minute meditation. All right, here's your, you know, the first week of a uh, you know, New York finance guys coaching is, all right, here's your homework. You're going to sit at your kitchen table with your coffee in the morning and you're just going to breathe for one minute. You're going to feel yourself in the chair and you're going to breathe for one minute. And they're like, a whole minute? <laughs> like, yeah, one minute. Then we'll do two minutes the next week, right? And what happens is after a few weeks, when they start to see how that helps, they expand it on their own. And they, you know, and they say, oh, I, go in, I now go into my quiet room and I do this. And now they have a homing device so that they can actually be present and make choices and decisions and not live on automatic so much. You have to have some kind of quiet time practice. Yeah, I love that. I used to meditate. I haven't for a while, but I will tell you when I was meditating, it was about five or 10 minutes, not a long time, but it really did actually help me like think through things. Like I felt like I had more discipline and I was a little bit more patient in the way I approach things. It makes me want to make, reminds me that I need to go back to it. So, so that's, that's the typical thing. Uh, you know, you know, I mark, I did that morning pages journaling thing and it was life changing. Oh my God. When was the last time you did it? I haven't done it for months. Okay, Mark, I'm signing up. Where, where do I sign up for your coaching? <laughs> I'm guilty. I'm guilty too. You know, like yeah. honest to God, but me, it's me and some sugar, right? Sugar makes my hands not work. When I don't eat sugar, I feel great. Yeah. Uh, and then I'll have like a week where I'm, oh God, I've been eating chocolate chip cookies every day. Like, and I can't use my hands anymore. All right, back to the no sugar. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, hey, your your website, and I'll put this in the show notes along with some more specific links. We're going to have a unique link that'll go in the show notes for uh, our website to take to Mark's website at thinktyler.com. Mark, your website is markjsilverman.com. Once again, markjsilverman.com. M-A-N is the last uh, three letters. And uh, there's a red button. Click that red button. And then where, where do they get once they go to the red button? So the funny thing is uh, most of my clients will not read my book. So they're like, Mark, can you make me a little five-minute video on agreements versus expectations? Can you make a little five-minute video on the difficult conversations thing? I'm like, absolutely. So I, on that page is five, the five-minute little videos of all the exercises in the book <laughs> for those who don't want to read the book. The Cliff Notes version. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, great. Hey, man, you are an awesome guest. Love talking with you. When you do get that, I think it's your third book you're working on. Is that correct? Yes. Or you will be? It actually be my fourth book because I'm part of a compilation that that I think is coming out in September. So uh, yeah, I've, I've been writing a lot and just kind of contributing and ne my next book will be mine. Very cool. So when you come out with your fourth book, if you'd be kind enough and you'd be interested, I'd love to have you back, talk about that and share it because you are just a, a wealth of knowledge and, and actually very entertaining too. <laughs> Thank you. I, I really enjoy connecting with you on and off the mic. Okay, man. Take care. I, thanks again. Take care. 
That's all for this episode of Think Business with Tyler. But we have plenty more resources to help you in your pursuit of business excellence on our website at thinktyler.com. If you'd like to be featured in a future episode of the show, feel free to reach out to us on social media at think underscore Tyler. We look forward to helping you think life, think success, and think business. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that the my name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big home. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.